0: money real estate empire. In the beginning, I don't think the police realized, uh, the community didn't realize who they were dealing with. His wife missing. I made a promise to Kathy that if anything ever happened to her, I wouldn't let Bob get away with it. His best friend, dead, shot in the head. Susan did not deserve to be murdered. His neighbor, dead, shot in the head, his head still missing. Maybe I wanted to get caught. A wanted man was the worst fugitive the world has ever met. Is Robert Durst behind multiple murders? I think he doesn't want to kill, but he doesn't like to be told no. 2001, Robert Durst was arrested in Galveston, Texas, and charged with the murder of his 71-year-old neighbor, Morris Black. Durst admitted to chopping up Black's body, placing the pieces in trash bags, and dumping them in Galveston Bay. And we begin tonight with that famous millionaire under arrest in a cold case 30 years in the making after a major twist in the case playing out on national television. Robert Durst, long suspected in the disappearance of his beautiful young wife, later suspected of murdering a friend in cold blood just weeks after the investigation into his wife was reopened. Is he wrongly accused? Was it an accident? Welcome to the True Crime Librarian. I'm your librarian and host, Ashley. Tonight, we wrap up the case of Robert Durst. It seems like no matter where he went or what he did, he was just sly enough to keep those bracelets at bay. Not tonight. Tonight, it seems as though karma has made its way back around and the name Robert Durst is the only one on its list and all eyes are trained on him. Last week, he went off on the lamb. Everything that he has done, will do, is all to keep him from going down for Kathy's murder. Even though at this point, she still hasn't been legally declared dead in this timeline. Body or no, one eye is always trained over his shoulder while the other one? Well, it's picking out the next person that he knows will betray him in his life. Warning, this episode contains graphic detail of murder and adult language. Listeners, discretion is advised. If you feel as though any of this may be too much for you, please skip this episode or have someone listen with you or for you. Good evening, my true crime nerds. Tonight, we wrap up this case, the first of the new year and the new season. Next week will be an off week, but don't you worry. Over on Patreon, The Librarian After Dark will air its second episode. New testing in the West Memphis Three case could prove that three teens who are now adults are innocent and possibly change the direction of this case down the road to the right killer. So head over and check that out. Don't forget, you can support the show through Patreon or head over to the librarian.com and click that donate button. It allows you to make a one-time donation to help keep TTCL up and running so I can keep covering the cases you want to hear. Remember, you can always support the show by reviewing and recommending and that means a dime never leaves your pocket. Now. To what you all came here for, the true crime. So, last week we left off with Robert on the run after being arrested for the murder of his friend and neighbor, Morris Black, whose dismembered body was found in Galveston Bay in trash bags. He knew too much in Robert's eyes, and the moment he felt like he was being used for his money alone, he decided it was time to kill Morris and move on. One phone call is all that it would have taken. For Morris to completely change Robert's life, he could go down for Kathy's disappearance and for the murder of his best friend, Susan, in Los Angeles. For Robert, it was time to run. On October 16th, 2001, Robert was scheduled to be in front of a judge that morning in Galveston, Texas, but as you know, he did not show and he wasn't going to. The moment he posted that $250,000 bond, he was on the lam. Robert didn't want to go to prison. That was his goal from the moment he decided to get rid of his first wife. I'm not going to pay for this. I'm not going to prison. I won't survive. Now, Deborah, his second wife, sent him the money for the bell, possibly a little bit more to help out with the, you know, being on the lamb thing. And thanks to those 48 transactions he made cashing checks totaling $9,500, he had a hefty little stash. On October 18, 2001, Robert rented a car in Mobile, Alabama, using none other than Morris Black's driver's license. Now, in his possession was Morris's ID and Medicare card. Both, I guess, to prove, you know, I'm really Morris Black. You know, because thanks to his disguise of shaving his head and eyebrows off, would mean he wouldn't look anything like that photograph. Even with his hair and his eyebrows, he still doesn't look like a photograph. But if he can produce this federal Medicare card, You have to think, I mean, you have to say, oh, well, I guess you are. Sorry about that. You just look different, right? Well, you know. On November 30th, 2001, Robert pops up just north of the Mason-Dixon line in Bath, Pennsylvania, where he proceeds to try and steal a chicken salad sandwich, bandages, and newspapers. Ironically, Robert had five hundred dollars in his pocket when the loss prevention officer detained him for attempting to steal said items. Yet he began asking and kept asking to let, for her to let him go to his car, and get some money out of the glove box to cover the cost. Every time he asked, she said no. So his next tactic was fine. Will you escort me to my car where I can get the money to pay for the items and? Just settle the whole deal. Again, there's $500 in his freaking pocket. And thankfully, she said no to that as well because and decided to wait on the police to get there, which was a great idea because when police showed up and they began searching his vehicle inside of that glove box, they found a loaded Taurus 38. So you can't help but wonder, would he have really hurt that woman when she escorted him to his car? I'm not sure if I think he would have. Okay. So I'm the one screaming. He might have been a schizophrenic. Right. I've been saying this for three episodes. Part of being schizophrenic. Is you make impulsive decisions. But Robert was really more paranoid. About getting caught. Than he was impulsive. So he harbored on that paranoia side. More than he did on impulsive actions. But you can't help but question what were his intentions when his wallet was discovered in his backpack, in the back seat, where money was. He had money in his pocket. You know, like, why did you keep your broad daylight? There's a lot of witnesses. Why would you? You know what I'm saying? So, I'm not saying that it's completely impossible for Robert to hurt that woman. He probably... It is more likely he was going to than it was that he wasn't going to. Why else are you asking her? But with it being broad daylight and a lot of witnesses, I don't know how that would have gone down. Maybe he would have went out in a blaze of glory. I don't, I don't know. In the backseat of his car, they did find his backpack. And that's the thing about Robert. Anytime he went anywhere, he had this backpack with him. If you watch in the movie The Jinx, or not the movie, the documentary The Jinx, he has that backpack with him when he comes in for some interviews. And this is it has his wallet, apparently has firearms, it has items that if he needs to go on the run right then and there, he can. Inside of that backpack they found a Smith & Wesson 38 and his like I said his driver's or his wallet that had his driver's license, it had Morris's identification. All of that was found inside his backpack. But the thing that was found that's a little eerie was there was a piece of paper from Hilton Garden Hotel and on it was Goberti Nehemi's Connecticut address. And I think I butchered that and I'm sorry. I'm not very good with pronouncing things. We know this. Now, who is she and why she's so important? If you did not listen to episode one, Goberti is the lady that Kathy seen last Before she went missing And she had spent the whole day over there At her friend's house Because she was completely distraught She had just found out the felony assault charges That were pending against Robert Had been settled outside of court And so that was really going to hurt her When it came to her filing for divorce From Robert And she really just was You know A woman at her end At the end of her rope and so she would spent all day there. And Robert called off and on getting angrier and angrier. When she finally left that evening. She, ter- she told Gerberte, If something happens to me. Look at Robert. So she has information that could really, really screw up Robert's life. And possibly. You know, take away his freedom. So him having her address, little eerie. Even worse, Robert was seen in the neighborhood of her address in a disguise. Thankfully, nothing came from his visit. I don't know what his intentions were. Um, it's just, it's just eerie, just a little on the eerie side. But what do we know? On January 27, 2002, Robert waived extradition, meaning he wasn't going to fight Texas. If they wanted him in their custody, he was agreeing to go. He knew they wanted him for the murder of Morris and for running after being charged with it. Once in Galveston, he faced a judge and jury for his part in Morris's death. But he had some fight in him, and really, you wouldn't think there's an alibi, there's a word, there's an excuse, there's anything to justify not only killing someone but dismembering them. Temporary insanity was talked about, but Robert and Deborah both refused to let anybody call him anything but mentally stable. He was paying a shit ton of money for these attorneys, and thanks to Deborah for being, you know, in control of his estate, she had a say in who was going to represent him. Robert admitted to having a break after accidentally shooting his neighbor in the face. So scared for what could come from the accidental death, he dismembers Morris, disposes of him in Galveston Bay. He accidentally committed homicide, but intentionally tampered with evidence. Which, by the way, if you did not know, that if there is dismemberment or moving of the body, tampering with evidence is a charge that will come with that. There are multiple charges that will come with that, but tampering with evidence is generally seen in every single one. Because, I mean, if you think about it, it's part of the crime scene and you picked it up and you moved it from the crime scene. So it makes sense. Although you wouldn't, you know, want your, you wouldn't want it to, you wouldn't want to think of it as evidence or whatever. On September 22nd, 2003, the state of Texas versus Robert Durst kicked off with opening arguments from prosecution promising to prove not only is Robert guilty of dismembering, he's also guilty of dumping the body and Shooting and killing Morris in cold blood Prosecution used his paranoia against him Saying Morris was using Robert for money They happened to find seven bank accounts During the investigation with Morris' name on them And one of them had a balance totaling over $100,000 Police believe that Morris finagled it out of Robert over time They had only been friends for about a year From the time that Robert moved in. To the time that he killed Morris. It was a little less than a year. In that time. He finagled over $100,000. Away from Robert. His paranoia is a little justified. He went to extremes. To you know. Resolve it. But it's justifiable. Robert's fancy lawyer. Said that Morris came over. The night of his murder. To Robert's apartment. He was threatening to tell people that he knew who Robert really was. And if Robert didn't give him some money in exchange for his silence, then he was going to tell everybody. But Robert said, you know what? I'm moving. I've had enough of this. Morris and his threats meant nothing. And for all he cared, Morris could call the police. Well, supposedly once Morris figured out that Robert wasn't stressing over him telling people who his true identity was, that's when Mar Morris reached down, grabbed the gun from the table, and the two got into a scuffle. And somehow or another they fall in the kitchen, wrestling over the gun, the gun in the barrel turn in the opposite direction than where it would started, and when it discharged it. Hit Morris in the side of the face. Robert said that this is when he quote lost it and began taking slugs of Jack Daniels. His thought process was, nobody's going to believe that I accident. This was an accident. I, the, you know, they wanted me for Kathy's disappearance. They're going to think I killed him. I need to do something. I'm not a big man. He's not a big man, but I'm not capable of carrying him out of this house as a whole person. So as he's drinking Jack Daniels, and you know. Uh, whiskey and alcohol makes us a lot more invincible. He decides, I'm going to cut him up and I'm going to take him out of this apartment in pieces. (sighs) So, he drinks a lot of whiskey, according to Robert, which if anybody drank as much whiskey as Robert said he did, I'm not sure how you dismembered anything or carried it anywhere, or drove it anywhere without somebody realizing you are plaster ash drunk right? No. According to Robert, he drank a lot of whiskey. He vomited several times in the process of dismembering Morris's body. However, there was never anything that said what happened to his head. On November 11th of 2003, after five days of deliberation, the jury had come back with their verdict. They acquitted Robert Durst in the murder of Morris Black, believing his self-defense slash accident bullshit. He was to be kept in custody, however, on a three billion—that's billion with a B—dollar bond for the two charges of jumping bond and the charge of tampering with evidence. Of course this went up to the appellate courts because that is an excessive bond and you know the 8th amendment prevents something like this from happening. So this very excessive bond was reduced to $450,000 as it was violating not only Robert's rights but also the 8th amendment and he needed to have a more manageable Bond. Yes, he was rich. Yes, he could probably meet most bonds that we find more realistic, but $3 billion was highly excessive in this case. On September 30th, 2004, Robert accepts a plea deal offered by the prosecution. If he pleads guilty to two counts of bond jumping and one count of evidence tampering, they will give him five years and he would receive time for what he's already served. He may end up having to serve less than a year from then, as long as he stayed a model prisoner. So here's where things kind of get a hiccup. The judge that presided over the murder trial. Was highly biased in this case It seems like that she had Convicted Robert The moment this case Came across her docket And I say this because Almost from the get go She is making some very Poor decisions and really Throwing her power Around We're not just talking About the excessive bond of 3 billion Dollars that she set we're not just talking about that. So, supposedly, there was very harsh semi-yelling lecture that happened following the jury's verdict. And it, I, I'm seeing this probably in the form of they dropped the ball, they let a guilty man go free, how could they do that? How could you believe the stories? You you know, you know, did a disservice to your country by not finding him guilty, yada, yada, yada. That's kind of where things really changed and gave Robert some leverage when he went back to appeal things. The, the lecture to the jury, totally inappropriate. Whatever they come back with, you have to accept. That's the way our judicial system was set up, and that's how it runs the judge could overturn a sentencing recommendation from the jury and as long as and give them something else as long as it's in the realm of the penalty that matches the crime okay she does not have the authority to come in and say well they didn't find you guilty but i know you're guilty so you're guilty no it doesn't work like that she has to accept the fact that they acquitted him for the murder of Morris Black. She has to. She doesn't have to like it, but she has to accept it. She did not. She set an excessive bond. She was inappropriate with the jury in in the whole thing. And from what I understand, she was a little inappropriate through the trial making comments that she shouldn't have, but she was under extreme scrutiny for this bi- being biased. So she was asked to step down as the judge for this case and somebody else was appointed to it and had the plea deal come across her desk prior to her being asked to step down She would have thrown out the five years and gave him max sentence of 10, which was the max sentence you can give somebody for these charges. That is within her realm. So, prosecution can put together a deal. The defendant can accept that. They will go to the judge. The judge does not have to accept it. He can change the parameters of the plea deal. Okay? So, She would have been within her power in order to change it from the 5 to the 10 years. However, once a new judge was appointed into her position, it was accepted as is. And on July 2005, Robert finally paroled from a federal prison and was sent back to Texas to serve out his parole. Well, this is just another part where Robert thinks, you know, he's above it all he can go and he can do whatever he wants and he was going and doing as he's, as he pleased when you're on parole and you want to leave the city you are currently on parole in you have to have permission you want to leave the county have to have permission want to leave the state probably not going to happen but you have to have permission robert wasn't asking for this stuff he was going and doing as he pleased on december in december of 2005 Robert did the stupidest thing a person On parole can do He ran into The initial judge of his murder Trial in a Houston Mall And she figured out real quick And in a hurry that he didn't have Permission to be there And that he's been going to Galveston And to Houston Just doing whatever he wants She's already sour because You know he's a a Guilty man walking free so she pulls some string, and the next thing you know, he's arrested for a parole violation. <laughs> he's back in prison. While in custody for this parole violation on February seventh of two thousand and six, Robert Durst wins a sixty million dollar legal battle between Robert and the Durst family. Basically, they paid him sixty million dollars to not. Be a part of their families. He was to cut ties with them. He wasn't supposed to come to their homes. There was no gathering. He, nothing. He was no longer considered a Durst member. Well, you know, I guess he can dry his eyes with the $60 million they gave him. Basically, they were done. Robert was unstable. He was nowhere near. What you thought a family member should be And tying And the the family separating Robert from everybody else Since he had so many different criminal woes going on It was weighing on them It was weighing on the corporation And severing ties was the way to go In order for the business to not completely tank Because Robert Durst is tied to it And the family lose the money They've earned their you know their ancestors Had earned so You're gone you're not a Durst You're not part of Durst organization you're not a board Member here's your 60 million Get the fuck out On February 28 2006 Robert was released from Custody following his parole Violation and come November Of 2006 his Parole supervision was finally Over and all Of the legal trouble With Morris Black and the murder. It's finally over. He's putting that behind him. It's time to turn the other cheek. Robert's luck is finally coming to an end. And we're going to see it throughout the next part of this timeline. During this time, there was a man named Andrew Jarecki. He is working on the film All Good Things, a movie that is loosely based on Robert and Kathy's life. And about Robert on the run after her disappearance. On August 16th of 2013. Robert is charged with trespassing. He's accused of showing up outside a big building. In which Durst organization owns. And a couple of the family members actually reside at. These members have a protective order against Robert. Violation. Big no-no. On July 20th of 2014. Robert is arrested again. This time, he's charged with criminal mischief. What did he do, you ask? He urinated on a candy rack inside of a CVS pharmacy. Really? On December 12, 2014, Robert has one more stroke of luck and is acquitted of the trespassing charges against him from his family. Robert seemed to want to be forgotten about amongst his family And they wanted him to walk away, but for some reason he could never truly give them up. It was all a game for him, and he enjoyed getting under their skin. Well, on December 16, 2014, Robert is back in front of the courts pleading no contest to the criminal mischief charge for urinating on the candy. He's ordered to pay $500 in fees and restitution to CBS Pharmacy. Robert doing something like this... He's starting to show signs of the compulsive disorders. He's making things happen on a whim. He's just going and doing. These things are starting to become prominent. And to me, this just says that the schizophrenia is probably getting worse. Or whatever's going on upstairs is getting worse for him. Whether it's schizophrenia, whether it's early onset dementia, whatever. Something like urinating on candy, most, well, I would like to say all sane people would not be doing that, okay? But I can't say all, so most sane people do not do that. On March 14, 2015, the tables finally turn, and Robert Durst is arrested for first degree murder in the shooting death of Susan Berman, his longtime best friend. He is arrested in New Orleans outside of the J.W. Marriott Hotel. How did this happen? Let me tell you because it was so just what (laughs) kind of thing. The FBI was looking for Robert. They were trying to track where he was in New Orleans. They could not find him. So they went to New Orleans and they just happened to walk into the J.W. Marriott just as Robert was walking out. Total coincidence that they just passed him. They passed him, they turned around, they arrested him for first degree murder. And for those who were following the case at this point, that was a huge sigh of relief because all the stuff he had done in the past and all the bullshit he had used to cover his tracks, we were finally, hopefully going to learn the truth about what happened between Susan and Robert and between Kathy and Robert on March 15th, just the day following his arrest, HBO airs the jinx episode and it's the sixth and final episode. This was huge because Drekki who both, who directed both all good things and the HBO documentary, he pulls a one-over on the very sly, sly Robert Durst. He takes an envelope, and a photocopy of the envelope that the cadaver note came in to Beverly Hills. You remember that from uh, last episode when he killed Susan Berman. He sent a letter to Beverly Hills Police Department. And the letter on the envelope of the letter, it's block lettering. But Beverly is misspelled. Well, Robert also sends something to Susan prior to her death, and he writes in the same, very similar font on the front of his envelope. Can you guess what he did? You're right. He misspelled Beverly in the same exact way. So, Derecki, he makes a photocopy of both, and it's just Beverly, And he lays them in front of Robert and he asks Robert, you know, did you write this one? It's the cadaver note. And Robert's like, I absolutely did not write that. So he lays down the one for Susan and he said, did you write that? And Robert says, yes. And Jarecki asks him, do you see similarities? He's like, well, yeah, I mean, it kind of looks the same. And there's this misspelling of Beverly and yada, yada, yada. So Drake pulls this stuff out and he says Okay, tell me which one of these you You wrote It's just Beverly Hills, California That's all it is Robert cannot say which one is The cadaver note and which one is his And he fucking admits it And it's great Once he's all Jimmel jammel He says, I need to use the restroom And he is burping Throughout this and it's weird Okay but we're going to look past it thinking he just came from eating or whatever. He goes in the bathroom. He is still might, And it's still hot. And in the bathroom, we hear the telltale of, there it is. You're caught. Here's the thing. Between directors and and. Of documentaries and the suspects and the defendants they're covering in the true crime documentaries they all for the most part keep their composure most of the defendants do not provide emotion one way or the other if they are guilty and they've already said that they are they will talk about it but if they are hanging on to this i'm innocent bullshit they don't implode robert imploded I'm going to give you a warning. Here's the actual sound coming from the bathroom that we heard over the hot mic in the documentary. If you have HBO Max, go watch it. If you don't, you can find clips of it on YouTube. Um, But I highly recommend seeing this. Warning, this is bathroom. So there's bathroom sounds. There's urinating. There's passing gas. There's burping. And he's talking to himself. So just look past all those noises and listen to what he has to say. Yeah, that's you're right. This is the bear. Mm -hmm. There it is. You're caught. You're right, of course. But you can't imagine. See sure. On March 16, 2015, Robert waives his right to extradition again. But first, Louisiana has something to do. Inside of his room, after he was arrested, there was a thirty-eight revolver found. There was $42,000 in cash. And there was a care package addressed to him to be delivered that day that had another $117,000 in it. It had some clothes and other items. Oh, and he had five ounces of marijuana, which only further solidifies the fact he just wanted to stay high all day long, every day. Robert enjoyed being stoned. And according to him, later he'll come back and say the entire time that he was being interviewed for Jarecki's The Jinx, he was high on methamphetamines. Is that true? I don't know. It's not like he was drug tested. On March 23rd of 2015, Robert is denied bond as he is a known flight risk. They, The judge agrees with prosecution that thanks to his past, it would not be wise to issue a bond following his arrest. On February 2nd of 2016, Robert stands before a Louisiana judge and pleads guilty to felon in possession of a firearm charges that stem from his arrest on March 14th of 2015. Finally, finally, on November 4th, 2016, this is a year and a half from the initial arrest for first degree murder for Susan Berman. Robert is extradited from Louisiana to California to stand trial for the murder of Susan. When meeting with prosecutors, he mentioned something along the lines of, I can't answer that because I would be saying I'm guilty. This was just even more icing on an already weird cake case, right? Robert loves to dance around the notion that he can self-incriminate him at any point in time. He can say I'm guilty. He can hint that he's guilty. He can offer into windows that he is guilty, but he is not ever going to physically say the words, I am guilty of murdering Kathleen McCormick Durst, Susan Berman, and Morris Black. Those words were never going to leave his mouth, but he sure as hell loved to dance around the fact that he could say them at any moment. He He loves this game, one of his favorite games. And whether or not well, I say he was never going to say these things. He did say these things with a hot mic inside the hotel. But I mean, he wasn't he didn't say it to people. He was saying it to himself yet not realizing he was still might, you know, teach their own. On March fourth of twenty twenty Opening arguments begin for the state of California versus Robert Durst. It is finally time for him to stand trial for something, and hopefully this time the jury doesn't believe his bullshit. It's not quite what we would call the trial of the century, but it's one highly anticipated trial. Let's just put it that we really want to see him nailed for Susan and for Kathy's murder. Susan played a part in covering up Kathleen's murder. So getting justice for her is step one. Two, nailing him for all of it. Susan's murder deserves just as much justice as Kathleen's did. But her murder, unfortunately, is just a piece of the bigger puzzle. On March sixteenth, 2020, the world changed. The COVID pandemic racked through country after country, and the United States suspended any and all things that included gathering in a group of people in a confined space like a courtroom. Robert's criminal case uh, for the first degree murder in the shooting death of Susan Berman is indefinitely suspended. In May of 2021, opening statements are given once again in the courtroom in California, Has it's been over a year since anyone heard what each side plan of attack was. This time, Robert is frail. He is aging rapidly, and there are reports that he has bladder cancer, and those begin to take headlines. In August of 2021 until the 1st of September, The court, the jury, the judge, everyone listens to Robert Durst take the stand. He speaks for a total of 14 days. He speaks of anything and everything from Kathy to the murder of Morris, where he reenacts the events of what happened in his apartment that night Morris was killed. He is seen wearing a face shield, and his color is becoming increasingly dusky. We are all looking at a man on borrowed time. On September 17th, 2021, the jury returns after two days of deliberations with a guilty verdict. Guilty of first-degree murder and the shooting death of Susan Berman with special circumstance because he killed her as she could become a potential witness in what happened in the disappearance of Kathy Durst. Robert is handed a sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole for the murder of Susan. Meanwhile, on the other side of the country, Westchester County starts putting together their evidence. They want to put Robert on trial for the murder of Kathy fast, especially with his health rapidly declining. A grand jury is convened and the evidence in the disappearance slash murder of Kathy is being presented. In October of 2021, COVID strikes the very frail Robert Durst. Something the prison system, his lawyers, and prosecution in Kathy's case were all hoping wouldn't happen. With rapid movements going on on the East Coast, we all finally hear the words we have been wanting to hear for a very long time on November 1st of 2021. Robert Allen Durst was indicted for second-degree murder in the death of Kathleen McCormick Durst. And we hope this would give everyone answers. But on January 10th of 2022, it took it all away. We may never know where he put Kathy. Her family will always wonder what happened to their sister. All right, Ms. Charmel, I heard you and I am here to deliver on your request. Up until tonight, I've done my research and presented the cases the thought of recommending reading was toyed with behind the scenes, but it wasn't something that ever truly came together until Miss charmelle asked for it. No one had asked that until you. So my recommended reading for this series goes to A Deadly Secret by Matt Birkbeck, published in 2002 before charges of first-degree murder in Susan and before the charge of second-degree murder with Kathy. He did a great job detailing the way Kathy's case was handled and how it oozed into other parts of Robert's criminal career. So if you're curious, go pick it up at your local library or you can pick it up on Amazon. The link will be posted in the description of this episode. Reminder that next week is an off week for TDCL, but The Librarian After Dark will be releasing its second episode over on Patreon. Go check it out and get your fix of yours truly and I will see you all right back here in two weeks. Like always, I leave you with one last line. It is certain in any case that ignorance allied with power is the most ferocious enemy justice can have. Much love, the true crime librarian.